0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Good morning. This morning we'll be continuing in our new summer series on Misunderstood Passages of the Bible. Our misunderstood passage this morning is arguably the most popular of all time. It's definitely one of my favorite passages and I dare, dare say it, it's probably one of yours as well. To what verse am I referring? Well, let's turn to it together. The book of John chapter 3, and verse 16. Let's read it together, shall we? Everybody, when you get there, come on. And here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's some times that we hear this verse being read and um, sometimes it might cause us to say like an ego, what is this verse you keep using? You keep using this, this, this Bible verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. And by show of hands, how many of you have heard this verse being read and thought the same thing? Okay, good, good bit of you. There are a multitude of ways in which this verse can be misunderstood and really it comes down to, it's just far too often taken out of context and forced to stand on its own. And when we do that with any verse, we can make that verse mean pretty much anything we want it to mean. <clears throat> Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, said that his father coined this phrase that a verse taken out of context is a pretext for a subtext. A subtext for a pretext. You can't take verses out of context. It changes their meaning. Or at least... It gives you the opportunity to change their meaning. The misrepresentation of John 3.16 has been used to declare the heresy of universalism. Universalism, what's that? It's the belief in the salvation of all souls. Everywhere for all time, everyone will be saved. Well, how do they come to that understanding from this passage, that everyone will be saved? Well, it is partly from this passage, but it's actually more from uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. Where John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word world here is the same word that uh, John 3.16 uses. It the misunderstanding that everyone will be saved comes from a a misrepresentation of what John is saying about the word world. What word is he using? If the word world means every person who ever lived or ever will live, then everyone will be saved because of the objective nature of propitiation, the satisfaction, that Jesus provided on his cro- on his cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, satisfied God's wrath against sin. All sin. And so, if the word "world" means every single person who ever lived, then no sin would be left unforgiven, even the sin of unbelief. So this brings us back to John three sixteen. The Greek word here for world is cosmos. The idea of the entire creation, the whole created order, everything that's in the world, all the people in it. But the problem is, is that the word cosmos is actually a general word. It's not a specific word. Let me illustrate. I love vegetables, absolutely love them. All kinds of vegetables, whether they're raw, cooked, doesn't matter, I love them all. Okay, somebody shout out a vegetable. Love it, raw or cooked, salted, unsalted, I don't care, broccoli, delicious. What did you say? Cucumber. I'm growing cucumbers in my garden right now. I love cucumbers. I can't have enough of them. What's that? All right, cooked carrot. Come on, that's coming from my son and he knows. I love carrots. I love carrots, but when they're cooked, when we adulterate them like that, they change their taste and they're not so good. Okra. Who said that? Who said okra? Back there, Kayla? Okay, well, you've actually brought me to my point. Peas, beets, and okra, they're all vegetables, aren't they? And I just said that I love vegetables. I loathe peas, beets, and okra. Do not put them in my face. And as my son so rightly pointed out, once you cook the carrots, I don't like them either. So that's just an illustration. I said, I love vegetables. It was a general word. It was a general meaning that I love all kinds of vegetables, but there's some specific ones that, uh, well, no, I'll puke. I really will, they're gross. Well, this is the same way that we should be thinking about the word world. His death, Jesus's death redeems people not from just among the Jews, or among the Americans, or from any one group, but from among the whole world, from all time. It is specific. It's the elect. Those are the ones who will be saved. So this this same misunderstanding about the word world can cause people to think that God loves everyone equally. Well, you've heard this before, I'm sure. We're all children of God, aren't we? Here's another one. God is love. And is he not? He is. Here's another one. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. But does God really love everyone equally? Well, there are some passages to seem to indicate that he does. Let's turn to Matthew 5. Verses uh, 44 through 45. And I'm going to start at 43 here. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Seems that God loves everybody equally. Makes his sun to shine on all of us, regardless of whether we're believers or not. He gives us rain to water our plants and refresh us. Okay, let's uh, go to Psalm sixty-five nine through thirteen. You visit the earth and water it, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water, you provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance, the pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. These are examples of what's known as common grace. In some respect, God loves the whole world. He lavishes his love upon the whole world, but only to a certain extent. Common grace is defined as an expression of the goodness of God. It's as an expression of the goodness of God. It's every favor, short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes so many things, such as the delay of wrath, the mitigation of our sin natures. We're sinners, but we're not nearly as bad as we could be. Natural events that lead to prosperity. God gives us the ability to think and to work and to earn money in order for us to feed our families. Even the money that we get is a gift from God. For all good gifts come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no change or shifting shadow. Gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. But this common grace, it excludes salvation. So there are other verses that indicate that God actually hates the sinner. What? Have you heard those verses? How does that line up with God is love? Well, Psalm 5 Verses four through six says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. To be clear, this word hate is truly what we think of as hate. Hate. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors, another word for hate, the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And then in Psalm 11, just a few pages over, verses five and six, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Why? For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And then Romans 9 verses 10 through 13 Let's start in the middle of 10. Also, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau, I hated." These, unlike the examples before, where it was a common grace, these are examples of a particular hatred. If there's examples of particular hatred, then there must also be examples of particular love. Now, for those who deny universalism, and really anyone who honestly reads the words of Jesus must deny universalism because he specifically says that people will go to hell. He says that they will have their part in the lake of fire. He says that it is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. Hell is a reality. there is an understanding that there are truly people who go to hell. That means that, the, that John's word, his use of the word world, must mean something other than each and every person who has ever lived or will live. Okay? So now we're out of the camp of universalism. We're more into the camp of... Uh, Orthodoxy, some have insisted that God sent Jesus to die for the purpose of bringing salvation to everyone without exception, but only as a possibility. The Arminian claims that the death of Jesus was designed to save each and every person in history. They use John 3.16 as one of their main proof texts to argue that fallen man retains some ability, some small ability to choose Christ. They believe that this text teaches that everybody in the world has within their power the ability to choose or to reject Christ. This makes Christ... Atonement, a potential atonement. It might work for you instead of a complete atonement. This means that there's something more that the person must do to bring about their own salvation, there's something more that they have to do to complete Christ's atonement. And as such, the atonement did not save everyone for whom it was intended. In other words, the Arminian view, while claiming that the atonement is unlimited in its extent, is forced to conclude that it's limited in its efficacy. It failed to accomplish its universal purpose. Now, If John 3.16 really does imply a universal, natural human ability of fallen men to choose Christ, then that implication would be wiped out by Jesus' explicit teaching to the contrary. I mean, he was quite clear when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So reformed people and non-reformed people, they both heartily agree that all who believe will be saved. And conversely, all who do not will be condemned. They just disagree about who has the ability to choose Christ. Jesus makes clear that the salvation of those whom the Father gives me And only those, it's not just a mere possibility. It's an absolute certainty. They will come to me. So the point made by the world is that Christ's saving work is not limited to one time or place, but rather it's limited to only the elect from all over the world and in every time and place. So now that we've seen some of the wrong ways to read and interpret this verse, let's attempt to recover the wonder of John 3.16 by reading it in its context. The context of this is Jesus is talking to Nicodemus at night. Nicodemus is uh, supposed to be a teacher of the Jews. He's supposed to know these things. I'm going to start at verse 12. (coughs) If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, (coughs) how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. The point here is Jesus, being the one who did descend from heaven, has the authority to speak about heavenly things. And frankly, he's the only one who has the authority to speak about heavenly things. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Numbers 21, 4 through 9, records the story of the rebellious Israelites who murmured and complained. God sent fiery serpents into their midst to punish them. And God told Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole with the promise that whoever looked at it just looked at it, would live. Also implying that those who did not look at it would perish because they did not trust the provision that God had made for their healing. Just look at the serpent. You'll live. I promise. So, In the same way, must the Son of Man be lifted up? Now, here's a key term in this gospel to be lifted up. It carries a double meaning of the crucifixion, to be lifted up like the bronze serpent was, (coughs) but it also carries the meaning of exaltation. Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, and his glorification together reveal the glory of God. He was lifted up. Now, there's another word in here, must. Must be lifted up. This must points to God's sovereignty. Points to the purpose for which he was lifted up. He must be lifted up because before the foundation of the world, God and the Son and the Spirit came together and made a promise to each other that they would redeem a people for themselves, for their glory. He must be lifted up. This is the only way for that promise to be fulfilled. The crucifixion was the keystone of God's eternal plan to save his people. So that whosoever believes may have eternal life. Who believes in him may have eternal life. And now we get to 16. 4. Okay, what's the word for? It's a conjunction. It joins what comes before with what comes after. They can't be separated. If you break these two apart, you lose the meaning. When we do separate them, like so many have done, the word so makes no sense. What? So? A little tiny word, so? Yeah. In Greek, so is hutos, and it means in this way. It's the same thing. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, like the serpent, in the same way. As the serpent was lifted up, the Son of Man must be lifted up. God so. This is the way that God loved the world. Not only did he give his son, but he gave him with the express purpose of lifting him up. Not only does it show the way in which God saved the world, but it also shows the extent to which God would go to do so. would sacrifice his only son I'm sorry I I, I love you people but frankly if it ha- if it were up to me and I had to sacrifice my son it wouldn't happen now why why would he do this well here comes the why loved the world he loved the world and remember this is the, this is the world that is a is a specific a general world but inside of that is contained the elect he loved the elect from before the foundation of the world christ died the, the lamb was slain for the purpose of bringing in the elect and for God's glory, for our good. Now, look, he loved the world. Now, remember I said, I loved you, but I wouldn't give you up, would give my son up for you. Let's take it even one step further. I love you, and we're, you know, friendly with each other. But no, God did this to his enemies, the people who hated him. We were all enemies, as Ephesians 2 says. But yet he loved us and gave us his Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Wait a minute. We were his enemies. Shouldn't he be condemning us? Well, if we continue on, yeah, he absolutely should be condemning us. This is, this is one of the reasons why people get this verse wrong. They say, well, God loves everybody. No. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned, people. You were condemned before he raised you up with Christ. Christ. but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And that makes me think of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. These words are too small. It's a good thing I wrote them over here. So I'm going to look over here now. Why are they already condemned? Because they have not. Believed in the name of the only Son. Those who, got, who do not receive the remedy that God has provided in Christ will perish. It's the same thing as when they were looking at the snake. You look at the snake, you're going to live. I promise. Just look. Trust in Christ. I promise. His sacrifice was enough to make me no longer see your sin. Those who do not receive the remedy God has provided in Christ will perish. Yet it remains true that anyone who does believe will not die, but live in God's presence forever. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I see all five of the doctrines of grace in these verses. I see total depravity, I see unconditional election limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. I even see the, the idea of um, the hypostatic union all in these verses. Now, I don't really have time to show you where I see each one, but if you want to know where I see them, you can ask me after the service. I'd be glad to show them to you but I do want to point out one of them and the difference that reading it correctly makes. Unlike the Arminian view of the limited atonement in which the death of Christ on the cross left something for us to complete, which is no salvation at all, the reformed view of the atonement says it is finished, complete, nothing more to be added for those for whom it was intended. It was never intended by our Savior to propitiate God's wrath for everyone who ever lived. Rather, it was his intention to redeem all of his people from all time Completely. So as we turn to communion, if you do not believe that Christ's death, burial, resurrection, exaltation was enough to satisfy God's wrath against you, I ask that you just let these elements pass. We don't want you to be confused. We don't want you to think that just taking a little piece of bread and drinking some grape juice is what's going to save you. It's not. We do this to remind ourselves that Christ has already done everything that is necessary to make you right with his Father. Like he said on the cross, it is finished. If you do believe this, please take it, enjoy it. Be refreshed and renewed in the knowledge that your savior loves you so much that he died for you. That your father in heaven loves you so much that he willingly sacrificed his only son. That the Holy Spirit loves you so much that he will never leave you or forsake you, even though you grieve him very frequently. Let's remind ourselves of how much that love has done. And it's a love that is specific. Thanks. Father, as we, uh, as we turn to your table, Remind us that your love is so amazing, so rich, and so pure, um, just measureless. And it will always be. There will never be anything that can remove us from your love, from your grace. And we thank you. Because of your love, we love you.